a lot to get on my show. Genius, you're probably someone we'd like to know. You're really good at stuff, you probably like to dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius, get on to my show. Howdy folks, welcome to Living with a Genius. I'm your host Omar Crook. Today I've got Dale Trumbor on the show. She's a composer, an author, a public speaker, and we talk about everything from how she started and maintains her business to her uh, artistic output and compositional process. And uh, we talk about wedding plans. We talk about her new book, Staying Composed by Dale Trumbor, Overcoming Anxiety and Self-Doubt Within a Creative Life. Terrific book. She just gave me a copy uh, today, but I got a little advanced copy that I've been going through, and I really enjoy it. Um, she's got a lot to say. She's very frank, both in her book and uh, on the interview you're about to hear. So I really want to thank Dale for coming by again. This is her second time on the show, and uh, I run into her um, around town sometimes at concerts and whatnot, and it's always great to see her. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Thanks for listening, and here's Dale. Um, so, hi. Hi. <laughs> Welcome back. That's really nice to have you uh, here at the desk again. Yeah, it's good to be back. Um, tell, catch us up. Catch me up on what you've been up to. Um, I've got some very specific questions for you, but I know, well, I, I'm not going to talk over you. Tell me, tell me what you've done <laughs> since I've seen you last. I wrote a few orchestra pieces. I wrote a lot of choral pieces and I wrote a book. I, that's amazing. And got engaged and I'm getting married soon. This is a very busy very busy summer. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, what's the difference uh, for you in writing um, orchestral music versus choral music? How did that? How does that differ? It's uh, in some ways it's really similar, and in some ways it's very different. <laughs> no, your blanket is in the bedroom, sweetie. I put it in your bedroom. Okay. I'll start that over. You don't need to start it over. Or not. I don't edit. I can just. I got it. kids. That's just how it is. <laughs> <laughs> we're here. adorable. We're here. Um, thank you. We're yeah. here in a very professional studio called my second bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> it, it looks very, the mics look very professional. Um, so is it, but, a, a, but let me cut you off just a little bit here. Uh, from what I understand and what I would imagine, what my own perception is, is that orchestral uh, composing uh, seems to be like the holy grail for for composers, right? It's like the it's Formula really One, hard right? To get those commissions, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, what was that transition like, both artistically, um, emotionally, psychologically, and professionally? How did that How did that come about, and how did it feel, and how did you accomplish it? Yeah. So, a friend had recommended me for one commission um, with the conductor David Lockington, and then he actually was looking for another composer for another. Uh, another commission that he was conducting, and so I the two it was kind of a two for one deal. The way they they came up suddenly, I had two orchestral commissions instead of zero. Um, one was for the Pasadena Symphony, and one was for the Modesto Symphony. Uh, and the Modesto one um, had to be related to their car festival, the antique car festival, because American Graffiti was shot there, and it's a big oh. deal. They have this parade and a car show, yeah, yeah. so that was really fun. Um, so my piece was kind of about sitting in traffic and and daydreaming. What's it called? Um, same traffic, new dance. Wow! And there were ballet dancers who uh, at the premiere of it. Was were, it? I mean, did you score it for ballet, or is that just a um, collaboration that happened? I thought. Well, I knew that it was going to have choreography for the premiere, uh -huh. um, but at the same time, I wanted it to be able to stand alone. So um, I, I thought a lot about 
when things would recur, when they would come back, there would be the potential for this, the same movements to be used and all of that. But otherwise, it was kind of a hands-off process. I'm not, I'm not a dancer. Yeah, 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 a choreographer. Right. <laughs> took ballet right. when I was like six years old, and then abruptly quit. Right. Um, right. Because I was not very good at all. But, you know, this leads me to one of the questions that I've had in mind. I've noticed as I've followed your career since we met last, or since I last had you on the show, I've seen you since then a couple times, and. One thing that strikes me about you is how um, seemingly methodical you are about the furtherance of your own career. And like, for instance, when you just mentioned the the structure of the composition and thinking ahead to future performances and how you would market that and make sure that it gets performed, is that something that you're cognizant of from the get-go, from the very beginning, the genesis of the piece, even the co concept of the piece? Yeah, um, especially with choral works, I think a lot about who my audience is in terms of not just people who will hear the piece, but people who will want to program it. Uh, whether it's for a university college audience or it's for high schoolers or um, all of the above. Uh, and that, that very much is there from the very beginning of taking on a piece. I'm already thinking about who I'll send it to as soon as it's done for second and third and fourth performances. And does that in any way compromise the artistic integrity of the composition, the way that you, uh, you know, there's an old adage that, you know, money... Um, uh, ruins art or, you know, that type of thing. Com commerce and art never intersect. I, re I really don't believe that. And a lot of it, I think part of it is because uh, the money side of what I do has always been embedded in how I do what I do and my goals for my career. Mm -hmm. I've always wanted to make a living as a composer and mm -hmm. now I'm doing it mm -hmm. and it's taken, you know, 12 or so years to get to that point. Sure. Um, but it's it's just always been there. And so when I write a piece um, on commission, I'm already thinking, I'm thinking very specifically about the group that I'm writing it for, whether that's a chorus or an orchestra. Uh, I'm thinking about tailoring it to them. And then I'm thinking about other groups that are similar to that or have similar interests or similar performers mm -hmm. um, or just a similar mindset in how they program and how mm -hmm. that might overlap with the future. Mm -hmm. So I really don't think there has to be a divide between money and music. I think it's uh, there's ways to build that in to the process. So it's just, you're still making the music you want to write. You're just doing it for a very specific person and a very specific purpose. Right, right. Now, um, I I went through your book, um, Staying Composed, which has just been released, which I'd like to get to in a little bit. But I noticed in one little section that you tend to group together the things that uh, are the marketing and business side of what you do and you kind of attack that all at once when you c come across um, a distraction or you give yourself a break from composing that you uh, take on these other tasks. Is that something that you um, have always done? Is it something that you, um, again, going back to how well you run your business, um, has that always been a focus that you do yourself? Do you have people to do it for you now? Is it something that you still run? How do you, I mean, with a website and with mailing lists and with all sorts of things? Yeah, um, for a long time, I've been doing everything myself. And I actually just this year hired an assistant and I am terrible at using her right now uh -huh. because uh, there's this funny thing that happens when you hire an assistant where the first time you you ask them to do anything, you have to explain everything and it actually takes longer to yes. do. And I'm sort of running up against that wall. It's like a ramping up right process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I'm getting I'm getting better at that. And I've just been in a busy season where I 
I've been telling myself, oh, I'll just do it myself and then it'll be quicker. And that's not the right way to go about a yeah. long-term solution. Um, so this this summer will be sort of um, training her to do the things that I don't need to be spending my time doing. Right. Did um, you ever, I mean, was it ever a grind to do that? For instance, I find that the for my podcast, I have trouble promoting it. I don't even post on Facebook sometimes. I, I feel like, oh, it's just the last thing I want to be doing. But you seem to either make a habit of it or you enjoy doing it or maybe a little bit of both. Yeah, it's not necessarily that I enjoy promoting, but I have a, my, my philosophy with self-promotion is if there's a story to tell around whatever wherever I'm promoting, I find that story and I tell that story about the thing I'm promoting. Mm -hmm. um, and I make sure that there is something, some kind of story with literally everything that I'm sharing that's original content. Mm -hmm. um, I will sometimes if someone tags me in a concert, I might just hit share without, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll retweet something um, and just send it out there and kind of boost what's already there. But if I'm making an original Facebook post or something on Twitter, I try and find something additional beyond just what, like, here's my thing, you should listen to it. Because I really don't think that's enough to get someone necessarily to click on something. You have to give them a why, and you, it helps if you give them something, something surrounding that that art. Yeah, it, I mean, do you find that that it's an absolute necessity to be on social media to promote your your work? I I mean, I do and I don't. I think for me, it's it's been really important. It's been really helpful. Um, I know other people have different philosophies. I have an an email newsletter that I've also been neglecting this <laughs> year. It's been on hiatus and I've been, uh, it's been very quietly on hiatus and then I didn't tell anyone I was taking a break and yeah. I'm, I'm coming back to it this month. Yeah, I uh, did the same thing with my podcast as a matter of fact. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to, um, I don't know, I felt really guilty about it or it's hard to let go or I, I, I should have said something or uh, people email me and say, Where's, when's the next one coming out? And so. But I think I think really the amount of caring you think other people are doing about that is probably a lot not less. <laughs> as much. Yeah, I found that with the, the newsletter. I'm, and I, you deserve to take a break. We all deserve to take a break. They're healthy and necessary. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. That's all. Yeah. Um, are you working on any uh, commissions right now? Yeah, I have. Um, let's see. I have a piece for uh, Panic Duo, which mm -hmm. is um, uh, Nick Gerpe and Pasha Zaitlin, um, a violin violin and piano duo based here in, mm -hmm. um, they're based in Pasadena. Hmm. And um, that piece will be premiered at the Norton Simon Museum. Oh, that's um, beautiful. Yeah, and then there's a piece for uh, for chorus and string quartet and piano and percussion mm -hmm. um, that'll pair with uh, Lenos at the NCCO, um, which is the, I think it's the National Collegiate Choir, or yes, mm -hmm. organization, uh, or chorus organization, I was. Mm -hmm. mix up the seas mm -hmm. but um the university of maryland uh chamber singers are giving this concert at this festival and they're hosting it and they're my uh alma mater i went there for undergrad and so it feels very much like a, a homecoming, homecoming sure. yeah and it, the fact that it's this uh big conference for collegiate choir directors is even better because any any place where the audience is made up of nothing but your target marketing sure uh, you know you're your target audience. Yeah. That's a really lovely thing. And um, I wanted to get back to the business a little bit. Do you control the, um, do you still have ownership of all of your pieces? Do you go through a publishing company? And what, um, 
What do you foresee in the future being the main source of income for you? Is it publishing or is it commissions or is it, I mean, do you conduct your pieces as well? Are you a conductor? I am. Um, I just started taking composing lessons uh, you late last, last year. Conducting. Conducting yeah. lessons. Wait, yeah, did yeah, I say yeah. composing? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I took those for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't take them anymore. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Conducting lessons. Okay. Um, for Specifically for conducting my own choral pieces okay. because... Um, I've found that I'm I'm being increasingly asked if I do that. And that's something I try to pay attention to when people are asking if you do something. Like you you were talking before we officially started recording about teaching voice lessons and how that's something new to you. But if someone asks you to do it or if there are multiple requests, it's worth at least considering this might be something I should look into. Sure. Because there's sure. already a, a demand for it. Sure, right? sure. Um, yeah, so I, I'm a, a baby conductor um, yeah, yeah. of choral music only, and yeah. um, we'll see where that goes. And it's been really fun. Yeah, how do you... Um, that's interesting, because one of my questions that I ask a lot of uh, composers is, um, besides being asked to do that, was there a sense of um, necessity in that watching other people conduct your piece sometimes drives you crazy? Because I've heard that before. It's not about you, but about only, other, yeah, from other people. It's only happened with a couple conductors. I I'm lucky that at this point I um I'm I'm choosy about who I work with and when and how, um and so you know ninety nine point nine percent of the time sure. I'm thrilled to have whoever I'm working with uh, performing my music. Sure. Um, but yeah, there have been a couple occasions in the past <laughs> where there's a maybe an amateur group doing a piece and. The conductor is on the amateur side as well, and it's just, and I, I've had the thought I could do better this, than this, and I don't even conduct, and it's yeah feels a little silly to say that out loud, but it's worth it's worth following that feeling. No, of course, yeah. of course, and that I mean might lead into a whole other line of work for you. Yeah, you yeah, know, especially if you enjoy it and excel at it, and um, I try and have. Um, um, a synergistic, synergistic, synergistic approach <laughs> to my business as well with the podcast and with the orchestra I'm founding and with, with the other podcasts that I contribute to about Michael Jackson that was just released. Um, they all kind of feed into one another. Yeah. And so, you know, for you, I would imagine that the conducting would lead into more of your work being performed and then more. Yeah, maybe more commissions. And, and, sure. Yeah, and getting back to what you asked before, um, the idea with publication, at least, it's to, uh, I, my strategy has always been to publish a few pieces, or like maybe one or two pieces each year, and then sort of use, um, uh, most of my work is with Hal Leonard. Actually, I think all of my published pieces are with Hal Leonard. Um, that's, I think that's 12 pieces now are published traditionally, and then the rest are self-published and distributed mm -hmm. um, through a, a distributor. So. Mm -hmm. I get to be hands-off with all of that music in terms of how and when it's sold, but I get a much higher percentage for wow. um, the self-published music. I see. So it balances out the exposure um, of the published music, traditionally published music, um, is great. And that goes, those emails go out to tens of thousands of conductors, and then the distributors might not have that kind of reach, but um, I'm making more money from sure. that. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And I think you address this question in the book, the question I'm about to ask, and that is, do you find it difficult to uh, let go of a composition and send it to the publisher for final engraving? Is it, do you ever, are they living uh, things? Do you change them as you see fit? Do you, how, how do you let go of a composition finally? So if I'm traditionally publishing a piece, I, uh, I, I have to be ready to let go of it because I give away 
with most traditional publishers, you actually give away your copyright, which is something I'm increasingly less interested in doing. And it's possible I might phase out traditional publishing altogether. In favor just, of self-publishing? Yeah, in favor of only self-publishing hmm. and working with distributors where I keep the copyright. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, m uh, mentally, I have to be ready to declare that piece finished. Mm -hmm. And um, with the pieces that I know, maybe I want to arrange them for, for orchestra or for a chamber ensemble or even for a different voicing, like if it's a, a women's chorus piece and I want a, a TTBB arrangement. Mm -hmm. um, I, I always want to hold on to that copyright. Mm -hmm. I always want to keep it so that I have um, just I still have the right to do whatever I want with mm -hmm. what is my music. And what I mean, do you feel that there are I mean, the obvious benefits in giving away your copyright is that you get paid quickly um, in having a little bit of hindsight. Would you have done the same thing that you did getting where you are now or would you have held on to your copyrights and tried to self-publish and i'm just asking for advice for other composers yeah. who may not be you know as established i think even um let's see I, I published my first piece i think in 20 i think it came out in 2012 and i'd signed the contract in 2011. Mm -hmm. um but i think even in in the years the seven years that have passed since then uh the the market and the the uh, the options available to composers are changing so rapidly. There are so many more distributors now um, than there were then. And um, so I think I would do everything the same that I've done mm -hmm. um, with the resources I had mm -hmm. in 2012 in the years um, since then. Mm -hmm. And my, my strategy actually flipped to for a while, I was only publishing the pieces I thought would that were like a very niche market. They wouldn't sell as many copies anyway, mm -hmm. and so I figured it was it was more okay to put them with a publisher because I wasn't gonna, you know, get rich on those pieces. Mm -hmm. um, and then I realized it would be worth having a, a couple pieces that were um, for a wider mm -hmm. yeah for a wider mm -hmm. market, having those published too because that could be an uh, an inroad to uh, conductors finding my self published music too if they found. Um, a piece that was accessible for a, a mixed high school chorus, mm -hmm. uh, then they could go to my website and see that everything is there. And well, on the on the website, there's no distinction between what's published, what's self-published. It's just all my catalog. Oh, I see. And then it's not until you go to purchase that you just get sent to the right place to sure. do so. Yeah. And what would your advice be to composers who are just starting out today? Today, um, I would probably suggest uh, keeping your keeping your copyright. Um, but that said, if the right opportunity comes along, especially if there's a conductor who you know um, will do... profile or... Yeah, who will really advocate for that piece and they really want to put it in their series, um, it might be worth it, again, just for the expo exposure and the publicity, um, using that piece as a tool to get more commissions, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, which does it does happen mm -hmm. that way. The first piece I published... Um, it was called the whole sea in motion and that i can trace back a few conductors who that was the first time they saw my name um and encountered my music and that led to uh, longer working relationships where they did commission me would you consider that to be your big break i it's funny i don't really believe in big breaks that's something else there's a whole chapter in the book about big breaks okay. and how um I, i've i've witnessed some uh friends encounter what looks like a big break and even when it when it, there is one decisive factor that is a huge turning point in your career, you still have to be ready for what comes after that. Yes. And if you have systems in place beforehand that enable creating your work without without anxiety and self-doubt um, and creating in a, a steady, healthy way where you, you're used to taking breaks and recharging, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, then once you do encounter 
a more of an audience um, or a sudden huge audience for your work, all of that will sustain you. All of that will make your career sustainable. Whereas if you don't have that in place, you not, you might not be ready for an influx of new commissions. You might overcommit to things that you actually can't deliver upon. Um, you might find that all of your um, whatever issues, whatever creative blocks you have are suddenly just magnified um, by the attention that your work is getting. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. it's, it's not going to solve all your problems, even if you do get a big break. So uh, I think that it certainly was a a break, uh, yeah, sure. a breakthrough of some kind to have this piece. It actually, the, the piece that I'm talking about, the whole scene in motion was premiered, or uh, it was premiered by the USC Chamber Singers, but then it was selected for a reading session at a choral conference where Dale Warland was conducting. Um, and he's still, he's become a, a good friend. And um, that, yeah, that relationship has been really, like just a really beautiful thing to have him uh, every time I go to lunch with him and his wife, Ruth, I'm always like, oh, my God, I'm having lunch with Dale Warland, even though it feels like a totally natural, normal right. thing now. Right, um, right. And that piece is what what did that, which is kind of amazing. And, sure. And that publication, again, led to many good things. But but I wouldn't I wouldn't call that a, a big break. I would just think it's one in a series of of things in a long, hopefully, sure. <laughs> a long career. Sure, sure. Yeah. Talk, talk me through how you scaled uh, your business and your artistic output uh, to be ready for that kind of opportunity. I think a lot of it is is um, just thinking of yourself, like preparing yourself to be a professional long before, maybe before other people are treating you like one. Mm -hmm. um, so making sure that you're, again, that you have a really healthy creative process. Um, but also starting to think about who who might be interested in your work and um, how you might go about getting your work into their hands. And once you have all of that in place, then the better your work does, the the more ready you are to jump on every opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, I know, again, for me, I've I've always had this one singular goal, and um, I, I know a lot of a lot of people aren't that way or they're drawn to many different things and um and that's great too it's it's kind of rare to have a very single-minded like i'm going to make a living as a composer yes uh, yeah yeah I, I i mean i i definitely fall into the latter group where i'm i'm a little bit scattered i have lots of interests i pursue them vigorously um but i don't seem to have uh, a plan in place for when that pasta actually sticks to the wall. Yeah. Um, so what would your advice be to somebody like me who, um, I mean, is it is it about habit? Do you have certain daily habits that you adhere to? To, uh, I mean, I, I know in your book and I know you and I have also talked about meditation mm -hmm. as being uh, a, a valuable tool to prepare yourself mentally for those types of things, for yeah. stresses. Yeah, for me, um, yeah, I do. I I go for a long walk or I do yoga, um, just at home, mm -hmm. um, every nearly every day, one of the two. And usually, when I do yoga, then I meditate as well mm -hmm. for even if it's for five minutes um, mm -hmm. or longer, mm -hmm. and that helps a lot with staying just keeping my brain <laughs> healthy. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. That's where um, I kind of falter. I feel like I. Um, sometimes my brain just over there's like short circuits, kind of overloads. Yeah. Because I have yeah. too much too many balls up in the air, you know, juggling. Yeah. Um, so I think it's great advice. Yeah. Uh, I want to also yeah. talk about your book before we. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
here it is. Staying composed. Thank you for bringing me a copy. Of that. Yeah. Really sweet. Um, I Signed got the. Too. Oh wow. <laughs> I got. I've gotten the idea that this uh, is part of your. Um, I don't want to say part of your plan. You may have just been compelled to write it. Of course, I'm, I would like to think that. I have to think that because you don't just sit down and write a book that's so <laughs> eloquently written just as an exercise. But this really does help um, your promotion and talking about who you are. I, I, th I've, I haven't, like I said earlier, I haven't read the whole thing. I got through quite a few chapters, though. A lot of it really stuck out. Uh, to me. And the, I guess the first thing I wanted to ask is why did you write it? <laughs> so I, um, there's sort of two, two big questions that when I was starting out, um, especially when I had just left grad school, um, questions that I had about how to make a career in music. And one was the financial side of things. And the other was just how do you get through this when this is your job? Um, I found that the more kind of like what I was saying earlier about uh, getting a big break, I found the more um, the more things that fell into place, the more I realized I didn't necessarily yet have a framework for uh, really coping with the uncertainty of this career, of a, a freelance career in music. Um, every day is uncertain. Every day might look different. Um, and things like managing deadlines and reaching out to people and dealing with my own anxiety to, I was actually going to say earlier too, I'm, I'm happy to say that I am on anxiety medication newly for the first time in my life. Um, and that's because I everything I was, I've been doing, all of the yoga, all of, um, it's, it's kind of funny timing. Like I just released a book on anxiety yeah. and then also I'm trying medication for the first time. <laughs> but, um, but it, it wasn't everything that's kept me really mentally healthy. I hit a point where it wasn't working. There was it too much yeah. and my brain was just spiraling out of control all of the time. It felt like I had no control over my thoughts. Mm -hmm. Um, even though I have all of these practices in place to get my work done in a very, structured and healthy way mm -hmm. so yeah um I'm, I'm trying that and it's been going really well and it just feels like that spin cycle of of thoughts has been quieted and and the cycle stops and i have moments now where i space out again and what do you think that's about is yeah. that about the society that we've created for ourselves and the paradigms and expectations that we have uh not just in, in the artistic field just generally being a human being in yeah. the west yeah i think i mean i think right now there's a lot there's a lot of bigger issues that are stressing out many yeah, it's of really us. getting me down um, i'll be honest with you yeah. like, I, I i talk about it a little bit more often than i should because it really bothers me that my six-year-old son is probably going to see the extinction of almost all the big wild mammals and yeah i mean that's that's terrible yeah oh it's horrifying yeah. and we have to live with that on a daily basis in addition to all of the little frustrating things yes. that you encounter in daily life and, yes um and if you have you know any sort of mental health issues at all that all just gets exacerbated by everything yes around you and so i think that's been part of it for me too it just and then in, in my own life things are going better than they've ever gone before career-wise um but at the same time i i think i overcommitted slightly this uh this yes. semester yes. <laughs> this season yeah. um and i again everything i was doing wasn't halting yeah the the thoughts that yeah, i was they're... having but but 
yeah, my um, I, I wrote an article about all of that, too. And I should say my I was talking to my mom on the phone and she made some joke like, oh, you should add a chapter at the end of the book that says, forget the book and just take drugs. And I was like, no, <laughs> she's like, I'm joking. <laughs> um, but I, I don't I don't actually think I would have sought out that additional step sure. if I hadn't written the book, because there was. I say in the book, too, if you if you need more help than a, any sort of self-help career guide book can give you that the book can't necessarily yeah it's it's a multi-step thing it's knowing yourself and then it's actually applying everything in the book to the creative process and that was a big there was a chapter for writing it yeah there was a chapter that i did uh, read um and it was something about um your even though you're successful it doesn't feel like it yes um yeah Talk about that a little um, bit. So yeah, the the chapter is um, where where is it? It's it's near the end. It's in the final section. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, I think it's what is it called? It's everything. Everything going right might still feel wrong. Yes, that's um, it. Yeah. But I I kept realizing that I would go to a premiere sometimes and I would dissociate from it. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. It, everything going right might still feel wrong. Yes, yeah. It, I read that this morning. <laughs> it would feel. Um, Sometimes, not all the time, but um, it was almost like all of the good things were too much to process, and so I was I was putting blocks in place to avoid processing that something really joyful and good was happening in my life, and that's uh, that's horrible, right? Is that's it a about horrible not feeling, feeling like you deserve. I think yeah, I think that's at the heart praise. of it. Yeah, uh-huh. I think that's that's something, and um, but I. Once I realized this, then I, of course, I asked what I could do to stop doing that. Because again, you don't want it. That's the last thing you want. Um, and even I'm I'm getting married in July and um, like we're speaking in June. So that's, that's yeah. really... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> really yeah. It's soon. coming up. Um, and I had a moment. Um, I've, I've gotten better at this process, but uh, I've had moments where I've thought like, what I the last thing I want to be doing is dissociating from my own wedding, yeah. right? On what's supposed to be one of, if not the happiest day of your life. I could I could imagine myself, even before I was engaged, I could imagine myself in my current state uh, just fixating on little tiny details that were going wrong yeah. around me. And I, I knew I didn't want that. So what works for me now is basically meditation, but a very specific practice where I remind myself where I am. I play plant my feet on the ground. Mm-hmm. I notice my surroundings. I identify um, what I'm seeing around me and who is around me. Um, and then I focus on my breathing. That's and it. it's that's it's so helpful. Um, it doesn't always make everything go away, but I, you just repeat it. <laughs> so whenever you catch yourself worrying about something trivial, um, you, you breathe in, you breathe out, you anchor your feet, you remind yes. yourself where you are. That's exactly what yeah. I do. Yeah. And in doing that, you forgive yourself. There's a really yes. sense that there's a real sense of ongoing forgiveness and self-love. And, and I, I kind of hate that term, but um, where you just recognize that your mind has wandered, that you're thinking about something yeah. else and you say, OK, and that's you just what, accept it. You that's let it what go meditation by, is, is. And then you start feeling the breath going in and out. Yeah. That's it's just it. forgiveness over and over again, right? Because yeah. your brain is always going to get distracted by something. And yeah. it's not thinking that it won't. It's not even really training your brain. To, yes, you might get better at not, you know, getting distracted or yes. spacing out. But um, really, the practice is about 
recognizing when you do it and then letting it go. And just being okay just with it. Every time. Yeah. Every single time. Yeah. yeah. Cutting yourself some slack. Yeah. That reminds me, did you happen to see that 12-hour thing uh, at Red Cat that Chris uh, Roundtree conducted? No. Um, it was this little three-minute section of Figaro. I heard about that. Yeah. It was unbelievable. Hmm. And it, it was about... Um, the section was the beginning of the finale to Marriage of Figaro. Um, the um, Contessa perdono, perdono, perdono. <laughs> and it goes on for about three minutes uh, right before they get to the Andante part. And um, they just repeated it over and, and every, every time they came to the end of it, they would switch positions on stage. And, hmm. um, and it reminded me of what we were talking about. It was an exercise in forgiveness because he asks for forgiveness and she grants forgiveness over and over for 12 hours, hmm. noon to midnight. And it became, I, we watched it for about three hours, three, three, four hours. And it became an exercise in um, watching somebody forgive. And it became uh, a metaphor for the most important things in our lives, which, which is forgiveness, asking for and accepting forgiveness, and the creation and maintenance of relationships that took place on stage after every shift. People would change partners. People would, and there was this one moment where Carabino uh, reached out and grabbed the hand of. I forget who it was and everybody started crying like the whole <laughs> audience started crying nothing was made of it and there was no big gesture she just simply reached over and and grabbed her hand as he was asking for forgiveness and it was like it was really mm -hmm. something it was really transformative uh, anyway I'm sorry I went off on that tangent no, it was just I love so that. special it was so beautiful and I find that in meditation too you yeah. just cut yourself some slack yeah. and just be okay with being alive in this split second as it's going by and then a new split second occurs and um it also brings me to this thing i just went to at the griffith park observatory my friend eric gave a presentation uh with some folks that run the telescope and uh, there's some spacex things going on and we talked he talked about the deep field thing that he wrote and looking at this um telescope uh, image from the Hubble, mm -hmm. which uh, they put the moon up on the screen and it was this little postage stamp size square that they focused on with the Hubble. And there were billions and billions of uh, whole galaxies. Yeah. And and it made me feel like, you know, if I crack on this note or if I mispronounce <laughs> a word on my podcast, it's like, does it's it just, really it matter? It doesn't matter. Yeah. And, it does, and then so then the other side of the coin is, well, if nothing matters, why do we do what we do at all. And I very quickly came to the conclusion because it's better than the alternative. Right. And because we find what that. we love and we and we do that. And maybe that's the answer to, to if you have many different interests too. You just It's better than you not. You don't trying need it. one thing you love. It's okay to have many things you love. We don't we don't feel this way about friendship, right? Where we should just I mean Yeah. I mean, maybe. do you ever have that problem of why why am I composing this? Do you ever get stuck? Do you ever yeah. feel like yeah. why am I doing Especially this? Especially when the Especially news in the beginning is I would I would imagine too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, that's one I think I talk about this late, like late in the book, too. Yeah. I have a series of questions I have to answer for myself um, before I start writing any piece and take on any commission. Huh. Um, and it's why do I have to be writing? Why, why am I writing this piece? What am I doing that's new, different or better in this piece? And why does this piece have to be written right now? And if you don't, do you need to answer all of those questions in the affirmative or is it just a certain percentage? I need to have an answer <laughs> to all of those questions. Okay. Um, and if I don't, then I say no. 
Really? Um, like if someone if someone came to me and was like, I really this, I keep I keep using um, Sarah Teasdale. I love the poetry of Sarah Teasdale, yes. but so many choral composers have been setting nothing but Sarah Teasdale lately. So I will use her as an example, even though again yeah, I, I love yes. her words. Mm-hmm. But if someone came to me and um, was like, I really want you to write um, an a cappella piece for um, high school that's setting this Sarah Teasdale poem, where I can already name three different settings out there of the same poem that are great. Um, I don't, I wouldn't be able to answer, I think, any of those questions. I might be able to come up with something I could do differently in my setting. Um, but does that piece have to be written? I, no, no, not for me. There are already three perfectly amazing settings of this theoretical piece. Um, it's not going to feel like something, it might be new to me, but that music will already be in my head, the existing settings. Sure. And um, it doesn't have to be written right now because it's not necessarily, maybe, maybe this poem, this isn't to, you know, trash all. Of course. Uh, yeah. Not all, I mean, not there are a lot of great poets. requiems too. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. And so maybe there would be something, maybe um, someone would come to me that with a text that really resonated with where I am in my life or with something happening on a global scale. Or, yes. Right. And, and then it would feel, yes, this is a really important piece to write right now at this moment in time. Um, only I can write it or I could do justice to it in a way that feels really important to me and maybe someone else will f- respond to it. And um, But again, in our hypothetical situation, that, that wouldn't feel like the case to sure. me. And so the answers would just be no. <laughs> now, have you ever betrayed that own your own idea? Have you taken commissions that you were uh, not so happy about? Definitely. Yes. Um, and I, uh, it's funny because I don't, again, I don't know that I would necessarily do things differently um, at the beginning of my career where I was just so happy to get really Anything. any commission at all. I said yes to nearly everything that came my way, especially mm-hmm. if it was paid. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know that I would do things differently then, Mm -hmm. but now that this is my career and I have, um, again, to go back to an earlier question, I, uh, very much have lots of different income streams. Now there's Mm -hmm. things like, um, royalties from a bunch in a different, um, in a bunch of different forms, Mm -hmm. um, from everything from radio broadcasts to sales royalties to, um, performance royalties, um, and there's commissions themselves there's speaking engagements there's there's all sorts of different income forms that feed my life and my mm-hmm. living mm-hmm. um so i can afford to say no to some things and you can afford to say yes to some freebies and things that are passion yeah. projects yeah sure. things like mm-hmm. working w- with a friend maybe who mm-hmm. can't afford to pay me a thousand dollars a minute mm-hmm. or something right. um or anywhere close to that sure. uh i can still prioritize that because it'll fulfill Maybe the answers to all those questions will be will be yes, and I'll get the added joy of working with a friend, mm-hmm. which is. Um, that's why know, we're here. That's why we're here. Exactly, we do we do what we love as much as we can. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, getting back to the book and speaking engagements, is this something that you have planned to promote the book? Some some speaking engagements, and how do you book them? How often do you do sp- speaking engagements? I so um, right now. I, I'm definitely thinking about all of that. I haven't yet. I, I want to make a talk that's rooted in the book, and that's something that I can give whenever I'm out of university. But what I already do is I often go and talk to um, uh, usually singers, usually choral singers who are performing a work of mine, mm-hmm. um, and I workshop the music, and then I also give talks on making a living in music, 
Um, and this would be one of many talks that I could add on to what I already do. And then maybe it would also work the, uh, the other way around where pe I'm sure some people will read this book and ask if I want to come speak at their university. Sure. That's already happened. That's been happening a little bit since the book's release. Um, when was it released? A week ago. A week ago. <laughs> yeah. Boy, it's off to Not a great a start. Ago. Yeah. That's terrific. I yeah. mean, it's so relevant because I think... I mean, I suffer from anxiety problems. I want I to. We all do. I. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that especially in the performing arts, because there's, uh, I mean, the arts tends to attract personalities that need something that they didn't get when they were kids, and they get that through the art that they produce or interpret. And I know that the uh, adulation was the big thing that attracted me to becoming a singer in the very beginning, and it still is a pull. Um, the trouble is, is that you don't always get adulation. Sometimes you just sing terribly, <laughs> and sometimes you perform terribly, or you trip, or you do something awful, and and then the very thing that you got into the business to, you know, take uh, is no longer available, and then you're left with this career that you wonder what, why you've started in the beginning, you know, to begin with. So the, this type of book, I think, is really relevant to so many people in our field, and of course outside of our field too. Um, and I'm I'm just thrilled that that it's out. I I mean, I can't wait to read it cover to cover. I, I just haven't had the chance to do it in the week that I've had it in my possession, um, but. Um, it's I don't know you're real you're really inspirational I've got to say you're really it's it's terrific to, to meet somebody who's got so much of the the artistic capacity uh, fulfilling that artistic vision and making a living doing it making a business out of it it's yeah really inspiring it's funny even with the book we, we talk about we've been talking about how the art and the commerce sort of go together mm -hmm. on one hand I knew or I hoped that it would sell copies and on the other, I just very much wanted to make the thing that I needed when I was 23 and that I still need now. Again, even with what I said about seeking out medication, there's a whole chapter on on what it, how, how it feels when uh, your life is at a point where you have to make the decision to prioritize your own mental health. And that doesn't always look easy. It doesn't always look um it's not always no, there's a cost the obvious to choice. There's a cost yeah, to that and sometimes as well. you have to cancel things sure. and you have to say no to people, and it feels horrible in the moment. But it's for the greater purpose of keeping yourself sane and mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. making the art that you need to make. And sure. that's why we all do what we do. And I, I also think the flip side of what you were saying about we all get into this seeking something we're missing. I think the happier flip side is that we're all thoughtful people, right? We're used yes. to thinking a lot about big big issues and um and we're trying to convey we're just trying to convey things and convey emotions through what we make and what we what we make on stage or what we make for other people to make on stage that's that's what we do and that's not that requires so much thought and sometimes just training your mind to be quiet and happy yes <laughs> yeah and to accept the fact yeah. that not everybody's going to love what you do yes that's, yeah. that's really difficult. It is. To to try and create something for a group of people with the idea that if you do it, they will like it. I mean, that's just yeah. a yeah. terrible trap. And you have to sort of divorce the work from that expectation, and that's hard. And yes. it took me years. And then once, once um, I guess the nature of just what I do is once I feel like I've found an answer, I just want to put it into words as soon as possible and be like, here, this might help you too. Yes. Um, yes. So a lot of the book is that too, like learning 
to cope with rejection and coping with a bad review and all of that. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. yeah. How, um, how have the um, wedding plans been going? They've, I they've found been, that to be really stressful. They've been good. Yeah, it's <laughs> funny. I um, very early on, it helps. So I've been with um, Luke, my my fiance, um, my part. It's funny. I put my partner on the on the back of the book, yeah. and um, my mom was like, "Just put husband." And I was like, "But when it comes out, he won't be my husband." And like <laughs> we've been saying partner for years. And anyway, um, so soon I'll have to the second edition will yeah. say husband maybe. Yeah. Um, but we've been together for seven and a half years, and. Um, honestly could have gotten married you know probably same year, thing with my my wife and i year. yeah we were seven yeah and yeah and he he's very laid back he's uh he's much less anxious than i am <laughs> but we uh we very early on ruled out the words or the phrases um uh like we have to do this um and even we i forget what the other i, I don't know we sometimes we say we should but that might have been also on the the no-go list where right. the second we we caught our saying ourselves saying like well but we have to, you know, we have to please this person. We have to have flowers. We did stop. Yeah. And we'd be like, but we don't, you don't, you don't have to do anything. All that you have to do is legally Show be up. wedded. That's it. Yeah. And, and every other thing is completely arbitrary and someone else has decided for you that you need flowers. So we're not, we might now we're kind of back sliding on the flowers. We were like, no flowers. Now yeah. we're like, we might have a single flower as a centerpiece, but um, we've just been viewing it as a big party. And, and where are you doing it? Where is it um, going to be? In Cincinnati at uh, oh. Luke's father's um, art gallery. He retired and bought an art gallery because he loved collecting art. Um, and he realized he could just embrace it and, and suddenly do it full time and collect and sell art and be around art all the time, although he was a, a lawyer. And, oh, um, that's amazing. Yeah. I yeah. love Cincinnati too. I spent about yeah. a year in Cincinnati singing at the opera there. And, oh, that's um, great. I just, I think it's a great town. It is. Well, yeah. I wish you nothing but the best. Um, Thank you. Oh, before I say goodbye, actually, <laughs> I want to, I want you to talk about what's coming up. Talk, what, what do you have yeah. coming up in the future? Yeah. So, let's um, do some plugs. Let's do some business. <laughs> there's, uh, well, there's the, the two mm -hmm. or the three, I'm working on three pieces. I, it's, there's a lot yeah. <laughs> happening. Um, <laughs> Before, I mean, and you're getting married. Oh my gosh. And I'm oh getting married boy. and I just released a book. Okay. Um, but yeah, I actually, I'm I'm starting to think about the next book that I will write, which is kind of weird, which will probably not come out until late, late next year. Have or, you started sketching it? Have um, you started organizing yeah, it? Yeah. I, um, I was making a list of chapters. So the, the book would be, um, the, right. I said there were the two questions that I couldn't have answers to. And the one was, the mental side of things and then the other is the more practical business yes side of things so i i want to write a book now about marketing and self-promotion i think that's a great um, idea yeah for for musicians and then hopefully this... what we don't learn in school right yeah exactly we don't know i mean i graduated and i didn't know what to do and yeah. you just start taking jobs kind of like and there's no out plan the yeah there's no there's and... no plan yeah and i worked for a long time as a, a nanny and a babysitter and then yeah. a piano teacher and you just kind of do what you have to do and yeah. So I'm um, I've started working on that. I was going to say I started making a list of um chapters and things I wanted to hit upon and then I I was sort of like, "Oh, I think I did this before with like little sketches of like essays I started writing and then I was like, "No, maybe they could go in this book." And then I found the document of 50 55 pages hmm. towards the next book. Like I already had done it months ago. Just on, I just copied and pasted things, and I was scrolling through it, and I was like, "Oh, oh what? Wait a minute. What's wrong with me? Like, what? <laughs> the first book wasn't even out." So that'll happen at some point. Wow. Um, and right now, yeah, just making lots of music. I have a couple um, 
potential recording projects in the work too, oh. um, in the works. And one thing too, I, if I keep saying it enough, eventually I'll have to do it, but an entirely self-motivated project would be a, a, a concert length solo piano piece that I could perform and record um, based on how we process memory um, and how memories change over time and how certain memories feel so immersive that we're, we're back in that moment and how that how that might translate into music because music of course is time-based sure. and when we repeat things in music we're already filtering it through the lens of having heard it before and i'm so intrigued by how that might turn into it well this of, sounds like a whole nother episode i'm yeah. gonna have to have you back for that <laughs> when that comes out in 20 that's 20 a, that's years amazing i have to write the piece first i've written about five minutes um, and no one's gonna commission me to do that like that's just me just for you it's just all yeah but um okay but that's that's on the deck for next year i think yeah so uh where can we buy your book staying composed by dale trumbor uh so right now it's on amazon mm -hmm. as um a paperback and uh for kindle and uh i've had a couple of people um also ask their local bookstores to get it and mm -hmm. i've had those bookstores reach out to me mm -hmm. um but Something I'll, I'll deal with this fall is trying to stock it <laughs> maybe in more places. Right, um, right. And I'm already thinking, because this is how my brain works, about a second edition to um, maybe in 20, early 2021 um, and having that be very widely distributed. But um, one thing I haven't said about the book uh, in any interviews or anything yet yeah. is that a large part of doing distributing through Amazon has been just doing it in the easiest way possible. Um, and that's a, that could be like a, a whole nother tangent I won't yeah. talk for. But I think that's really important too as an artist sometimes to get yourself to do the thing. You just need to ask yourself what the easiest way to do it would be and do that just to just to do yeah, it. Yeah, just to do it. Um, rather than making it into something like even podcasting, you could research the equipment for days. You that's could right. Convince yourself that it's going to take two thousand dollars to start, or you could just get a twenty dollar microphone. Or use your phone. Um, or use your phone. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's it, you're exactly right. I um, purposely don't edit my podcasts. Mm -hmm. I make lots of mistakes. I drone on and say dumb <laughs> things, and uh, that was part of my personal exercise because it's perfectionism that prevents me from doing a lot of things. I always it's very easy to say all the things that will go wrong and why you shouldn't do it. So uh, I'm I purposely don't let that get in the way of what I do, and uh, yeah, just have to kind of soldier on and yeah. take yourself a little bit less seriously perhaps. yeah yeah it's a great strategy for, yeah <laughs> dale for it's been a pleasure thanks for coming by thank you so much for having me well there you have it folks the terrifically talented and charming dale trumbor thanks again for coming all the way over to my home studio here thanks for putting up with uh a little interruption here and there from my kids you know what are you gonna do i love my kids can't yell at them they're just great I uh, hope you enjoyed the interview. Thanks again for listening. Remember to always be kind, do good work, and until next time. Genius, get onto my show.